With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. not understand that they are that way because you're Joe Flacco. And you just like to discredit things that people deserve credit for. That you can't possibly be expected to defend that. Talk about the game, Sam. So Who cares about what people think about us? Yeah, I like football, I like football season, all the things that go with it. Welcome into the PFF NFL Podcast. Steve Pellazola, Sam Monson, back here reviewing all things Week 8. But before we dive in, special shout-out to our friends over at Monkey Knife Fight. What a deal we have here. All first-time depositors at Monkey Knife Fight that put at least $20 into their account while using the promo code PFF will receive a free PFF Edge annual subscription. That's right, $40 of value for just 20 bucks, and you'll get the opportunity to turn that 20 into even more money playing daily fantasy and prop games at one of the fastest growing fantasy sites in the country. Go to Monkey Knife Fight right now. Deposit your 20 bucks with the promo code PFF today. Receive a free PFF Edge annual subscription. And the PFF NFL podcast is brought to you by pristineauction.com. Check out their daily auctions with $1 starting bids on over 8,000 football items all up for auction, signed helmets, balls, jerseys, and much more. Pristine Auction guarantees authenticity on every product. Use the promo code PFF for $10 off your first invoice. Promo code PFF at pristineauction.com. Sam, it was a crazy week, man. Yes, madness. I mean, I knew things were headed in a, a weird direction when you've been drafted into cover for uh, Michael Renner, young Renner, who has had himself some COVID scrapes. Um, for the PFF live show. So I was in here on the Sunday, Scrapes. and all anybody's talking about is the weather because a lot of wind, a lot of rain, craziness. You're like, all right, we're, we're headed for some nuts today. Like, there's going to be some mad results, some craziness. And actually, ironically, a lot of the games where the weird results popped up wasn't anything to do with the weather, but weather definitely affected some of them, and this was a game or a weekend of some definitely bizarre games. Weekend, I mean, um, weekend. The weather definitely does affect the past game and, sure you know and that's why i'm always talking about domes and indoor environment i mean those controlled environments versus it's, having yeah, to i mean it's specific elements. days right like yeah you, i mean yesterday when i woke up yesterday the wind was like battering the side of the house and you could hear it for the essentially the first time this winter you know this 
this uh, this season of bad weather. Like, and it's different, right? Those gusts of wind make a difference where the ball is going to end up, and if they're happening consistently through a game, it's definitely going to affect it. Depending on the quarterback, more than others, you know. So we'll we'll get to that. Um, let's get to. We'll start on Thursday night football. Ages ago, the Falcons defeated the Carolina Panthers. I think ultimately. The underachievers crept back toward average, and the overachievers crept back toward average. That's my takeaway. Falcons were underachievers coming in, and the Panthers, I think, had been overachieving, as we said in the preview pod. Yeah, I think the things that – a couple of things happened. One, Matt Ryan and Julio Jones showed that they're still a connection that can not just function but be really good and be part of a rebuild there. This idea of tear it all down, strip it for parts, flog it off, you know, start from the ground up. They don't need to. This is – their foundations of a good team are still there in Atlanta, of which Matt Ryan and Julio Jones are two foundational pieces. You can build around those guys pretty quickly um, and put this thing back on the right track. They showed that. And, of course, it wouldn't be Matt Ryan to Julio Jones if it didn't also feature a spectacular failure to find the end zone somehow, yeah. despite putting it there. Um, That's what Julio does. Yeah. And then the other thing that happened, I think, is the Teddy Bridgewater turnover-worthy plays actually hurt this time. That's right. what you had been saying, right? Yeah, I mean, like they, he'd been yeah. he'd been sort of living a little bit in of a blessed existence, you know, hadn't been punished for all the turnover-worthy plays in his game, and he's been making more of them than I think a you would expect from Teddy, and b that he can given his style, right? He is a relatively conservative quarterback. He does he's not a, he's not enough of a gunslinger to offset a large number of turnover-worthy plays. So if you're going to have like two in a game, you need to get lucky because if you're going to have those turnovers, that's where you get in trouble. Yeah, Bridgewater on the season has only three games graded above 70. He's kind of fluctuated back and forth, a bunch of games in the 50s and 60s in between that. And he was one of those guys, when you looked at the numbers, they were a little inflated coming into the game, I would say. aided, just, Not inflated, just aided by the offense, aided by yards after the catch and what they were doing, and it kind of came back down to earth a little bit in this and one. And that 70 line was like his Vikings sort of baseline. Like yeah. That's where you, you would have expected Teddy to be if he's going to be playing and playing well in uh, quotation marks. He's not really been at that level. Um, he's done some nice things, and I know the offense, I would say, is probably less talented overall um, than previous situations. But, yeah, Teddy... As great a story as it is, he hasn't played at the level that I think he's capable of playing, uh, which I guess you could look at as a good thing in that if he ever does, you know, stop making so many turnover-worthy plays and actually find that level again, there's more to come. All right, let's get to some of the biggest games from yesterday, starting with the AFC North. Pittsburgh Steelers remain undefeated, defeating the Baltimore Ravens. Yes. Were you surprised by the way this one played out? No. Um, I think this went exactly the way it was supposed to, which is it was fun because it was a game of defense. Um, both teams have both teams have Past a defense. defense at least. Yeah, but both teams have a defense that's sort of set up to stop the other team, right? And they, we talked about this Blitzburg defense. They're going to come after you. They're going to throw bodies at the line of scrimmage, whether it's a run or a pass, and they're going to cause you issues. And the big question heading into the game was have the Ravens essentially been um, protecting Lamar Jackson knowing that this game was on the horizon, right? He hadn't had more than three designed carries in a game since week two, whereas obviously Lamar used to be like a huge part of this uh, offense from a, in the design run game, and that just hadn't been a factor. 
that changed in this game. He was a much bigger part of the designed run game, but it didn't matter because Pittsburgh, like he wasn't able to neutralize what the Steelers were doing. That was the sort of question heading into this game. Is Lamar the one thing that can invalidate everything you're doing on defense or is the fact that you're going to throw all these bodies at him going to stop even Lamar? And it kind of did. I mean, the Ravens moved the ball on the ground. It really did come down to a, a ton of turnovers and Lamar was really bad for, that's, from a pass game standpoint. Yeah, but it's it's the difference between unforced and forced errors, right? Yeah, like, I mean, so if it started, you pressure a guy that much, you're going to cause him to do some dumb things. Something's off though with with Lamar compared to previous years. I mean, he we, coming out of the draft and then even last year, we were like, look, this narrative that he just likes to scramble around and make plays—it's wrong. You know, you guys mm-hmm. are wrong. That's not what we see on film. And it, we were, and it was true. You know, he was a guy that loved to sit in the pocket and go through progressions. He is not that guy right now. If that and not every first read is perfect. He had the pick six. Um, actually, that was kind of a little bit late in the down, but he's he had a pick six early on. Um, bit of a blind spot for underneath coverage yesterday. That was something he had shown in Louisville. But I, to me, the most concerning thing is he's not the guy that's going from front side to back side, working through his reads. His first instinct is to is to move, is to scramble. And that's not normally him. So is that, you know, trust in the offense, playmakers getting open, or Lamar trying to play hero ball? I think that is what what the the thing I feel like I was right about coming into this was saying it was a Lamar game. This is going to be like the game is on his shoulders here this week. Um, the thing I was a little wrong about was the fact that the Ravens were able to run the ball against that Steelers defensive front. I thought the Lamar game would be just more more keepers in his hands. And then, you know, does he make the big-time throws or turn it over? That's what played out. But I've got some concerns about, you know, how he's regressed here from a pass game standpoint. Yeah, I mean, I think they're fair. But I also, again, I, I do think that this defense was cut out or was, was set up to make that a problem. Like, it's, it was going to be a Lamar game from a passing standpoint, but not in the sense that you have all day to sit back there, go through your progression, find an open guy, and hit him. Like, you actually needed to have designed, schemed, essentially calculated deep shots and and play-action hits over the top to take advantage of what this defense will give you, which I think is those bigger plays deeper down the field because they're sending so many bodies at the line of scrimmage to blitz. Um, So he was never going to have, like, all day to just sit back there. He was always going to be under pressure. But it was like the Titans game, right? Eventually, you're going to have those play-action shots, and you're going to be able to hit some big plays and punish them. They just weren't able to get that done. So you've got, again, pick six early on. Robert Spillane, man, making some plays. I mean, he wasn't perfect. I was. It was funny because I had to – I watched how well he broke on that ball. I mean, he, uh, short area stuff, he looked great in coverage. That's the linebacker for the Steelers who is taking uh, Devin Bush's spot. Now, mm-hmm. also at the end of the game – the Steelers traded for Jets linebacker Avery Williamson. I think that's a pretty good move just to add some depth where they don't have it. But Spillane played, played pretty well with the pick six, had another pass breakup. But I had to look up his uh, measurables. I'm like, wait, did did people miss on him because he's such right. a good athlete? He was a below, a below average athlete across the board in his combine testing. But short area stuff yesterday, uh, including the pick six, was really impressive. Um, the funny thing about Lamar, too, it just felt like he was – he was playing with fire the entire game too. He had a scramble where he just straight up dropped the ball. I mean, jumped back on it, picked up the first first down. But between that, threw one right to uh, Ali Highsmith underneath coverage uh, for an interception. Uh, 
was playing with fire quite a bit. But he also had like his first touchdown was ridiculous anticipation mm. and ball location. I I don't like the Lamar game that is playing uh, Josh Allen-y, volatile, big time throws, turnover worthy plays. That is not Baltimore's game, and he it's also, not Lamar's game. Yeah, and he got robbed of a crazy touchdown with a, a holding penalty. That, that was insane. Back. Yes, in, an insane scramble for a touchdown. I will say that. So you can make an argument that this game, the Steelers. I don't want to say got lucky, but oh boy, they this they relied on a ton of turnovers in this game, right? They didn't actually get an awful lot done themselves on offense, right? Their average per play was like five yards. It was pretty miserable, um, but they get a ton of turnovers and thus escape with a win. Um, but and it, it, even then, it came down to like you know plays right at the death where it could have gone either way. But for the Steelers, we said going in, this was like a shot to nothing. It, this was a gamble, right? Because you have two games coming up against Baltimore, which are going to sort of decide not just the division, but seeding, all those kinds of things. And this was the away game, right? This is the game in Baltimore. Even if you lost it, you get to bring them back to Pittsburgh and split the series, and that's all you really need because you already have the the lead, right? You're already the undefeated team. Now, they already, they're already they one up. They've got like a free game to throw away. It doesn't matter. Like, this was a huge game for Pittsburgh just to escape with a win because now you're you're still the only undefeated team in the league. But more importantly, the worst you can do now is split the series with Baltimore. And the second game is back in your building. Like, this is a massive game for them in terms of determining AFC seeding in particular now. Steelers are sitting pretty, and they are a team that I don't think any of the numbers would suggest that they're the best team in the league. But, of course, the record will. And um, so I'm sure we'll be hearing about that when they're not. I don't think they'll be number one in our ELO power rankings or anything like that. No, they won't be. Uh, Bud Dupree, by the way, I just want to give him some credit. Okay. He might not win a ton of one-on-ones, but I, I, a lot of those cleanup sacks and various things that he gets, um, high motor player. I mean, the guy, he plays hard. He's very well suited for this defense. Yeah, because you get a lot of opportunities and all that stuff to be to be freed up and all that. But with Bud... Um, he had the strip sack, which was like the whole play was him blowing the whole thing up. He knocks the tight end off his route, causes hesitation from Lamar. He's unblocked, or he comes around the edge, forces the fumble, recovers it. I mean, it was a great play. I mean, those are the types of plays, again, that the Steelers were making. So while um, TJ Watt is a much better down-to-down player and had more than twice as many pressures as Bud in the game, Dupree is a nice complimentary piece that plays hard and stumbles into some sacks but he also earns them with with by by the way he plays he's a really interesting player for them going forward because um i think he's quite valuable to this defense right we've talked before the way they scheme guys up one-on-one it's a similar situation to those players that baltimore are able to generate one-on-one matchups with all the time because of the blitzing they do like the steelers generate bud dupree a ton of favorable situations and matchups and blocks and one-on-ones and cleanup plays on the other hand because they because all of that happens as a byproduct of the defense like how much do you want to invest in that right but he's probably more valuable in pittsburgh's defense than he is in anybody else's defense did i say ali heisman i meant alex alex heismith from charlotte but that's the guy that they drafted to potentially replace but for bud like so if you're another team you probably don't want to pay him big money because you're not going to be able to put him in the same favorable situations. The Steelers are the team that potentially would want to give him the most money 
on the other hand, they're also the team that understands how much of his production is essentially schemed up by other things. So in a weird way, nobody should want to pay him that much money. It's just, it's, it's a bizarre sort of contract negotiation that that's going to be. This is, uh, this is Matthew Judon all over, all, all over yeah, again except, with the Ravens. Yeah, it is, but in a slightly, I think, different way, but the similar, same, similar idea. Same but different all yeah. at the same time. Yes. Um, for the Ravens, Ronnie Stanley signs a massive contract since the last time yeah. we, we met. Huge left tackle contract and then hurt early in this game, out for the season. So Can tough I, Am I up. going, uh, is it Dr. Sam again? Yes. Okay. So immediately comes out and it's like done for the season with a, I, I don't know what the wording was, but significant, serious ankle injury, which means it's broken, right? This is the only thing you can know that yeah. soon after the game, because if it's ligaments, you got to give it the MRI to make sure and get it confirmed. That doesn't happen until the next day. It means it's been x-rayed and it means whatever in the x-ray they've seen is catastrophic enough that they've immediately ruled him out for the rest of the year. So it's some kind of bad break to the ankle. So says Dr. Monson, MD. Actually, I probably shouldn't do that because that's my dad, and he actually is an MD. That's probably saying, we already know issues. that he's out for the season. Are you trying to? No, no, I'm saying that like that's you just knew it because he's out for the season, which they have said it has to be a bad oh, ankle oh, break because we, we don't know because that's the only thing you could rule out his the rest of his season so declaratively. Can't wait till you're proven right on that. Thank you. Um, we send our best to Ronnie, though. That was um, he is really happy that the guy got paid because yes. I mean, dude, that could have happened a week ago, and the guy's now in a really tough contract negotiation spot. Instead, he gets his money, and good for him. I have an alarm to wake up. Apparently, yeah. he was uh, he was on his way to free agency. He did get paid. I am glad he at least got the contract before, as you said. Um, so yeah, Pittsburgh remains undefeated. They could be sitting at ten and zero the next time these two teams meet again. Uh, Big Ben, you talked about the passing off, or the, just the Steelers' offense in general. Real quick, they really struggled connected on passes down the field, but a really nice pass for what essentially was the game-winning touchdown from Ben. So that just feels like what the Steel, like the Steelers, can win games in different ways. I mean, that's why they they are where they are. They can, but this is a couple of weeks in a row now where their offense has looked a little bit listless, yeah. and, and Ben in particular. Like we were we were sort of praising this a while ago as. You know, he's become this game-managing facilitator, and this is great because the offense is still going fine. And, you know, he's unusually well-suited to be able to transition into this role late in his career because he started off that way, you know, as opposed to a quarterback that's always been the guy. But now, after a couple of weeks of it, it's like, well, you know, the offense hasn't actually been doing that well. And if he doesn't have anything more in the tank, maybe this is actually a cap to what they can do on offense, and it's a little bit more concerning than it is encouraging. So... Yeah, it's just it's on a it's a delicate balance at the moment about whether that whole thing is a good or a bad thing for the Pittsburgh offense. But the good news is their defense is still like terrifying, and that's going to help them go a long way. All right, let's move on to the NFC North, and there were some surprising outcomes. Yes, this week madness. This is one of them. The Minnesota Vikings upset. This is ridiculous. The Green Bay Packers. Now, hear me out here. It's not ridiculous. It is. It's ridiculous. It's not ridiculous. It's absurd. I think if we look at this from a 30,000-foot view, right? the Packers have been so clean offensively this year. Were they really going to be able to keep that up? The Vikings, every week I'm trying to remind you that they're not as bad Stop it. as they look. Now, all that said, I have – I don't want to say I've never seen this because there have been – you know, the Eagles – 
skill position players the last couple of years, the injuries that they've dealt with. Rarely do you see injuries attack a position group as ridiculously as the Vikings have been attacked. Which was already ridiculous on paper before the injuries hit. It Let was me... bad, and then a guy's got hurt. Go Your ahead. Honor, I would direct you to Defense Exhibit A, a message I received from a Mr. Stephen Palazzolo at 3.47 p.m. on <laughs> Sunday, November the 1st, who spent in giant capital letters is actually playing in the Viking secondary. And to Besides which, the safeties. Right. You've got two great safeties and then a bunch of cornerbacks that they just dragged in off the street like yesterday. And those were the players tasked with defending Devontae Adams and Aaron Rodgers. That alone should have led to this being a giant blowout for Green Bay. Yeah. It, and it didn't. It didn't. I think there's a little bit... Here's what I'm, here's what I'm wondering with Green Bay. Did they just really peak in the in the beginning of the season we, we mentioned Rodgers was playing at a ridiculous level and yeah. he still played fine yesterday he was great um minus a couple times putting the ball on the ground but or one time putting the ball on the ball on the ground at the end of the game um it's Devonte Adams and nobody Robert Tunyon's emerged you know th but this on paper lack of playmakers that they were doing such a good job of scheming up through the you know early weeks and Cover two shots to running backs and, you know, using Tyler Irvin as a jet sweep guy. All these things that they were doing. Has that just caught up to them? And, it, and when, when Devontae Adams is on the field, that's Rodgers' guy. And there's, there's nothing else you can trust. Is I, that where we are with the Packers' offense? I do think that for as much as they were able to roll for a while with, you know, just Devontae Adams, nothing else, it, having a secondary major threat is still important and they don't really have one still um like the when you don't have I mean, we talked about it heading into the season that alan lazard was emerging as that guy and as bizarre it is, as it is they miss a lot when alan lazard isn't on the field because he's the one other guy that rogers actually trusts from a wide receiver position like he's thrown targets towards marquez valles scantling and you know equinemius and brown saw a few yesterday he doesn't have the same level of trust in those guys. He's not, he doesn't look up, see those guys in one-on-one -on -one coverage and is perfectly happy to just put the ball in the air and give them a shot the way he does with Lazard and he does with Devontae Adams. So I, I think it's, it sounds crazy because look, Lazard is not an elite receiver by any means, but I think he does mean a lot to this offense. And when he isn't out there, it's significant. Do you know who could help? Who? Will Fuller. Okay. There were some trade rumors that the Packers would be looking into Texans wide receiver Will Fuller. Um, I also teased the article I, that I wrote with Brad Spielberger last week, the f Rebuilding the Texans. So if you're a Texans fan and you're listening, go, listen go check it out, pff.com. We rebuilt the Texans move by move last week. And how do you think that would, would fit Will Fuller as a compliment to Devontae Adams? I think that would I mean, be a significant upgrade for it makes some sense but it really all comes down to whether rogers trusts the guy right because i think st brown i mean valdez scantling maybe to a lesser degree but i think they have players that should be able to function like that but for whatever reason rogers doesn't trust them the same way so it doesn't really matter if it's will fuller or if it's valdez scantling or whoever if rogers looks at them as part of his read and doesn't like it you know what i mean 
It doesn't. It doesn't make any difference. I mean, I think it would make a little bit of a difference with Fuller. But again, only if Rodgers is trusting it. Like unless he's unless he's so much better that he's just immediately five yards open in as part of the progression and therefore demands the target. Which I, I mean, I don't think he is even as good as Will Fuller is. Like he isn't. He's not, not that good, right? He's not killing people immediately. Off no, the- man. He just you just run those deep over routes, let Rodgers throw it fifty yards in the air. I think, I think he'd work that a little bit better than MVS. Um, on the other side, I did t- I did send you my theory the other day about the value of uh, the quote unquote elite running back. A couple times a year, they're going to take over. As much as we're t- we started talking about the Packers offense, but the reality here is the Vikings scored twenty eight with very little from there downfield passing attack this game was also ridiculous in that like nobody was punting everyone was just taking like 12 play drives and scoring a touchdown and then answering with a 12 play drive and scoring a touchdown there were so few possessions yeah in the fr- like, especially like, in the in first, the first half. Yeah, yeah in the first half like everybody had two possessions and then like one kneel down or whatever to end the game it was ridiculous uh the other thing that was bizarre I, like i don't i'm not a big fan of these sort of hey weird box score quirks of statistics that never happened but uh, Dalvin Cook scored four touchdowns. This was the first time a Vikings player had scored four touchdowns since, like, the 80s. Like, Chris Carter, really? Randy Moss, Adrian Peterson, none of those absurd Hall of Fame players they've had. I mean, receivers don't usually do it. It's usually a no, running No, but Moss thing. has had, like, three a few times. Never got four. Adrian Peterson never put up four, despite putting up, like, 300 yards on the Chargers or whatever. I've mentioned before that my Dalvin Cook comp is... Fred Taylor. Ah, yeah. This does remind me of a game back in 2000. Fred Taylor against the Steelers goes for four touchdowns, including one on a screen pass, three rushing. He ran for over 200 yards. But my theory on running backs here is that if you do have an elite one or a high-end one, for whatever that's worth, a Dalvin Cook, say Derrick Henry, Christian McCaffrey, Alvin Kamara, two or three games a year, it's really going to show up. This was one of those games. This is a screen pass for, what, 50-plus yards, whatever that was, for the touchdown, weaving through the Green Bay defense. Yeah, he had the three touchdowns on the ground. That's not all him, but you rush for a buck 63, 111 after contact, 3.7 after contact per rush. I mean, Dalvin was the guy in this game because they didn't have to do much else throwing the ball down the field. Yeah, um, and as you would expect with Dalvin doing well, their offensive line did a lot better as well. Um, like Ezra Cleveland looked like an absolute train wreck the first time he played. This week was good. Uh, yeah, run blocking wise, solid grades across the board from from everybody that played. So yeah, impressive outing by the Vikings. Cousins didn't have to do a whole lot, thankfully. Thankfully, <laughs> and um, yeah, I mean it just felt like one of those games where again, like Rodgers is playing pretty well, but there's something that every time there's so many just fourth downs and key plays where the back end of Zimmer's defense did just enough to make Rodgers hold the ball, throw it away, whatever, you know, that kind of a classic Zimmer defense, even though it was stitched together and, you know, band-aided. For Green Bay, Kenny Clark clearly isn't back to being 100% of himself. He hasn't looked like the same guy since he's come back. Where the hell was last year Zadarius Smith? Or this whole year? Like, he's he led the league in pressures last season. Uh, he was genuinely elite as an edge rusher, as a pass rusher, had 93 total pressure, something like this. Um, but one of the things when we were trying to rank players in the offseason, like the PFF 50, the best players going into the year, it's like, what the hell do you do with Zadarius Smith, right? You have one year where he's like the best pass rusher in the NFL, 
outside of Aaron Donald. And then everything else is like, I mean, it's all right at best. Um, what is that? Okay. And of course, complicating even more, it's like the best year was in a new environment. So you can always make the immediate case that, well, all he needed was a change of scenery. Baltimore hadn't out, been using him. Right. right. It turns yeah. out he's elite. But so, we, you know, you you put him where you where you want to put him, you ding him for those earlier seasons. And everyone's like, what are you doing? You're ranking him too low. He's amazing. He's just had 93 total pressures. Now, like if anything, he's worse than the guy he was before last season. He has six sacks right now, Sam. Yeah. So but, explain to the people he's not getting the pressure at the same rate. Yes. As last year. Not at all. Like he's not even in the same ballpark in terms of pressure rate. He's his grade, his pressure rate, the decisiveness Almost. of his wins. None of these things are in the same area. How about this one? Over 70% of his pressures have come in two games. Yes. That's, I think, the bigger issue. And this it. was supposed to be one of the games where he, like, hey, look yeah. like that guy again. Didn't I, I mean, the Vikings didn't drop back enough. I mean, he only had 14 rushes. But he has uh, 15 of 21 pressures in two games against the Texans and against the Falcons. It is interesting because we've seen a lot of career year, year four and five jumps from um, edge rushers over the last couple of years from Demarcus Lawrence. Olivier Vernon was like the, the first guy that really did that, earned the big contract a few years back. D. Ford, Bud Dupree. Um, so we've seen a little bit of that, and some guys level off, other guys maintain it. Zadarius kind of leveled off uh, just a little bit. So Vikings with the upset over the Packers, that'll have some playoff implications as Seattle won, and they're going to take they're taking control of the the very coveted number one seed this year because there's only one in each conference. What's next on our list? New England and Buffalo. His pressure rate this season, by the way, just to finish that off, is nine nine percent pressure rate, which is ex almost exactly half what it was a season ago. People don't like when you cut off my segues. Yeah? Yeah. That's a shame. You just did it again. Hmm. It's okay. I'll I was try doing it, it to add some more information. It wasn't even a segue. I just announced the next game. I know. New but England and Buffalo. I had more data points. <laughs> uh, this one felt – this was one of those weather games. Winds are howling. Um, you know, precipitation, the whole deal, right? This is one of those games. We're anti-run game here. Um, but until Cam Newton fumbled the ball, both run games were more productive than – their respective pass games they did both teams did run the ball extremely well you're talking about two of the worst run defenses in the nfl and that is rare for new england they are one team that is almost always fundamentally sound they're going to stop the run and you know make you one-dimensional that whole cliche buffalo on the other hand has trotted out undersized fronts over the last couple of years and kind of invited the run just a little bit so it's less surprising there but this was a game where the you know the O-lines looked pretty good. The running backs looked pretty good. Another one that came down to turnovers. I mean, the Patriots are in field goal range. Or the critical turnover. Yeah. Critical turnover. Justin Zimmer with the forced fumble. Ferris State's own. Ferris Journeyman State. Justin Zimmer with the strip sack. Not strip sack, but the fumble. Great play. Chasing Cam Newton. Yeah, great, the great play by him. Really was a genuine game-ending play. So both teams in this game averaged two. Yeah, averaged two. Um, yards before contact per play. That puts you in the top five of the NFL in terms of league or season-wide, right? Four teams heading into this game were 2.0 or better yards before contact per play, of which the Patriots were one of them. So we were saying heading into this game, it felt like the game, right, where the Patriots would just run the ball like 40 times and try, yeah. and, try and win that way. And they, you know, they kind of did, like almost. What do they have, 34 rushing attempts? So they were in that ballpark. Um, and it was working, you know, averaging five and a half yards per carry, 
two of which came before contact, another ton after contact. Like it, this was the game it was supposed to be, and it almost worked. But you got to hold on to the ball at the critical time. And the thing is, like, I saw the you know the Zoom interview after the game, and Cam Newton's taking all the responsibility, saying I just got to protect the ball better, carry it high and tight. He carried it fine. It was just a great play. Great like, play the by dude, Zimmer. Like he had it where it needed to be, and a, just a big, strong guy got hold of that football perfectly and, and wrenched it out. It's almost impossible to stop a ball coming out if a guy hits it the right way. You know, when you're trying to run through contact, it just is. Yeah, I mean, credit to Cam too, by the way, just for taking the blame throughout the uh, the New England struggles. They. They talk about stitching together a, a group of receivers. They Julian Edelman was hurt. Nikhil Harry was hurt, for better or for worse. Um, Jacoby Myers, Demir Bird are the two top receivers out there uh, in this game. Jacoby Myers picked up four first downs. He did a nice job. But this was – it's just the same thing from a pass game standpoint. Even with the elements, I mean, they're like, who are you afraid of? Nobody. Uh, on the, even when Edelman and Nikhil Harry are out there, who are you afraid of? From a playmaker standpoint, Ryan Izzo was making some plays like great. I mean, they what they have is a like journeymen or underrated players or undrafted players who are performing above expectations, but that's just not going to cut it in the NFL. Um, it's especially compared to what the Bills are trotting out there with Stephon Diggs, John Brown, and Cole Beasley. Now, ultimately, both teams looked very similar. Josh Allen still, you know, back to missing a bunch of throws down the field. I'll, I'll always absolve him a little bit from the. It's tough throwing the ball down the field, the weather. But, yeah, since the apology, he's still great in at 65, Sam. Yeah. Yeah. 65. That's unfortunate. It is. It is but unfortunate. It was a, a hard-fought, close game. It was one of those games where the Bills have a much better record than the Patriots, but it's not It's not like – you weren't expecting them to blow it out. Blow will, them out, I don't think. Yeah. I mean, yes. Wind was definitely a factor in this game. I will say this is also – I was at a game in Buffalo years ago, which is the most – it's, A, the coldest I've ever been in my life. It was, like, December the 27th. Um, it's also the most wind I've ever seen affect a game. They almost missed an extra point short. And this was back before they moved the extra point back. You know, yeah, it was like a chip right. shot. Yeah. And it went up and hit a wall of wind and just, like, dropped straight down just over the, the goal line. It was back – the Patriots had Randy Moss and Tom Brady, and they were like doing the pregame, you know, just warm up stuff. They were stood like 10 yards apart from each other and almost like couldn't complete passes. Like that's how windy it was. So the wind, like when you put the, and whatever about it, the wind was not that strong yesterday. But when you put the ball in the air deep down the field and you get a gust, like even if it's not strong, like the gust will move that thing four or five yards in any given direction. That's a significant problem in terms of accuracy deep down the field. Yeah, and here's what I'll say about that, right? I mean, we are it's, – it's about the pass game, the pass game. Between this game, the Saints and Bears game, there are times when you have to find other ways to win. So I want to give the Bills credit. It's Zach Moss, the rookie running back, forcing five missed tackles on his 14 carries, the same stuff he was doing at Utah. Devin Singletary, those guys both ran the ball well. That's how the Bills sustained offense and scored – in the red zone, Josh Allen with a QB draw on the on the goal line. That's how the Bills won this game. What do you take out of this game from the Patriots' point of view? So for Buffalo, obviously, it's great. You get the win over the Patriots, which was like your only real threat, I guess. Within, nah, I don't want to dismiss Miami outright, but it would be a massive shock if Miami ultimately— Miami's a threat now, man. Yeah. So I'm not—again, I'm not dismissing them outright, but it would be a massive shock if Miami really challenged the Bills for the division— 
down the stretch. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, I think the Bills are a better team. Right. So, But the Dolphins are the second best team in the division. Fine. But going into this game, you would have expected New England to be the only real threat to Buffalo, right? If they yeah. lose this game, suddenly New England are like, you know, creeping their way back to 500. And yeah. with all the legacy knowledge that we have of New England, you would be at least nervous if you're the Bills. Instead, they effectively squash that threat. The Bills uh, take control of the division for sure. And now if you're the Patriots, like, what does this mean? You're back, you're two wins, you kind of suck, but you they're, came they're close to winning. Currently picking in the top 10. Yes. The Patriots, and here's, here's the most telling thing. Bill Belichick in an interview on Friday, and the headline was that Bill Belichick blames the salary cap for lack of depth. Mm-hmm. There's nuance to the discussion, but <laughs> very rarely does Bill Belichick add any nuance to the discussion. We got to play better. We yeah. got to coach better. That's it. That's generally his answer. He actually went out and said, you know, we're lacking depth because we had some opt-outs. We've had some injuries. And we were up against the salary cap. We went for it, essentially, the last couple of years. They have dead money. that They're paying Tom Brady this year, mm-hmm. right? We, this goes back to before the season. We did say this is the most unpatriots-like offseason in that they've, you know, they've got dead money right that they're that they're dealing with and they had some opt-outs and it's it's just not a good roster even if you brought Tom Brady back like are they actually the favorites in the AFC East essentially it's just not a good roster so it's Bill Belichick or who if you want to call this is more of a failure of Bill Belichick the GM than it is Bill Belichick the coach the roster plus a little bad luck between opt-outs and injuries have crushed this team you could also say the injuries like 33 year old Julian Edelman's hurt big shock you know, that's a team-building issue, the fact that you haven't replaced any playmakers or that you drafted Nikhil Harry over Debo Samuel and A.J. Brown and D.K. Metcalf. That has all added up. The dead money thing's actually kind of funny. They have almost $20 million tied up in, like, Tampa Bay's receiving connection. Like, Tom Brady to, to, to Antonio Brown yeah. is, like, almost $20 million of dead cap money for them. They've, they've got $3.2 million in dead cap money to Steven Goskowski. Really? Yeah. yeah. So Michael Bennett is another $2 million. Like The players actually on the list of their dead cap money are kind of funny. So look, if you go back to like way back, before the Patriots won their first, two out of their first three games and almost beat Seattle, hmm. you go way back and it's like, look, it's a transition year. Yeah. They, might be, they might be tanking for Trevor. They might be rebuilding and all this stuff. That's kind of true now, despite yeah. how you know good they looked through three weeks people as a got, team. People, and we were probably in the boat got carried away with the start of cam newton and the the difference that he could make to what everybody expected to be a fairly crappy roster heading into this year like the the if jared stidham was the starting quarterback there was a genuine uh, thought that this team could be j- tanking for trevor lawrence like institutionally trying to tank all they did was change jared stidham for cam newton and cam newton played well out of the gate so it's like oh well this they're back to the playoff contending team again like no, I mean they still they're bad. Like Cam Newton doesn't take that and turn them into a playoff team. I thought they'd be good enough against some of the bad teams, but you know it goes to that and disappointing effort like, against the Broncos, yeah. crushed by the San Francisco right. 49ers. I still don't expect them to be like I, I don't expect them to be picking in the top ten. I think by the end of the season. Oh yeah, they'll they'll win more games. They they still have the Jets twice. Yes. So uh, Buffalo in a commanding lead in the AFC East. Let's go to Chicago. 
New Orleans Saints at the Chicago Bears. This game goes to overtime. This was a this was a crazy game. I thought it looked, you know, Nick Foles hits two deep balls early on, and I'm like, all right, maybe this is the Nick Foles game. Mm. Instead, how'd that go? If you take our intro and our intro to the podcast with your, you know, kind of making fun of Joe Flacco and his obliviousness mm-hmm. in the pocket, that was Foles yesterday. There was just so many plays. I always joke that he's just he loves to just invite pressure and get hit while throwing. In this one, he didn't even start his motion. It was just taking taking too many sacks late in the down. And then on the other side, Drew Brees throwing the ball outdoors. Ugly. Brees, the underrated part here. Brees threw what should have been a game-ending pick six in overtime by Roquan Smith that was dropped. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He did. It wasn't a good ball. Roquan did get away with quite a significant grab to make position on that. Like, it was an out, and he did that whole grab him by the hip and slingshot slingshot yourself in front of him thing. Like, he should not have been able to undercut that route from where he was if it was played honestly. Now, they didn't flag it, so if he had caught it, it would have counted and it would have been a pick six. On the other hand, I think you can look at that and say, that isn't as bad by Breeze as it looked. Yeah, I mean, it was... Foles had multiple turnover-worthy plays, also had some drops in there. I mean, it was... I think it was just ugly both both ways, but uh, competitive a competitive game. The Saints offense very much driven by just the underneath stuff and yards after the catch. Over sixty three percent of Breeze yards coming after the catch. Um, what do you make of this for the Saints? I mean, I think ultimately it's just they battled their way through and they're still in the thick of it and they're heading to Tampa Bay next Sunday night to see who's going to you know take the lead in the division (laughs) it's true that is what's kind of fascinating by this is when the when the saints play badly on offense it looks really terrible and we're like all set to write it off and it's like this can't go anywhere and yet they still kind of put up points and win yeah and i mean as long as that keeps happening my problem i think is that you have to judge them on a curve right it's like it's not you don't compare them to like the jets right it obviously compared to the jets it's light years better and it's it's way more functional and they'll win way more games but this is a team that's loading up for a super bowl in 2020 and so that's what you have to judge them by at which point you're asking can they beat the bucks can they beat the chiefs can they beat the steelers the ravens like the best teams in the nfl and it feels like this when it runs into those teams is going to come up short and i know you can make the argument that chicago was one of those teams but everyone was talking about them as one of the most fraudulent, you know, good record teams ever. So I think you can kind of say that that isn't the test yet. But next week, right? Next week is week nine. That's yeah. the Bucks game. At the That's Bucks. the next test. I mean, we all got to put in there. Michael Thomas out. Yes. Emmanuel Sanders out. Uh, both probably back for Sunday night next week against the Bucks. Sanders definitely should be right. And then Thomas probably. Um, from a Bree standpoint, though, I mean, he's going to come away with a poor passing grade from what I can, you know, from what I've seen. Literally every time he threw the ball beyond 10 yards, it was either, you know, not everyone was bad. He had the touchdown to Jared Cook. He had a couple of completions there, but it was an adventure. Some underthrows that were bad, and we knew there were swirling wins. It was their first outdoor game. It does make a significant difference. But for the Saints, to your point, to be able to put up points without Drew Brees playing at a high level, I think is is a good thing and um you know for the bears i don't know man you i was you know they were hoping for that high-end game from Foles that that they needed it looked good early on and then 
he was just all over the place. Less than 25% of Drew Brees' passing yard or passing attempts were targeted beyond the first down markers. A quarter, less than a quarter. Yeah. And I know playing defense isn't as simple as, well, just throw eight guys across, you know, underneath. But, you know, they had a busted coverage where Kamara runs for They had Khalil Mack covering yards. Alvin Kamara. That's just bad. Don't and do In that. the first half, Breeze didn't target a receiver until his, you know, like 15th right. row. And late in the game, they had it figured out, right? Late in the game, they're running like a swing to Alvin Kamara, and they've got two separate linebackers yeah. tearing after him into the flats. That makes sense. Dropping Khalil Mack into coverage to try and pick him up in the shallow zone is just a dumb idea. That's stupid. This guy makes defensive backs or linebackers look ridiculous when he has a two-way go. Why would you ask a dropping edge rusher to contend with that in a shallow zone? That's just it's it's asking for exactly what happened, which is Kamara to just go, <laughs> "Thanks. Pick it up and, you know, bury himself deep into your secondary." Kamara, another, you know, he's another one of those running backs, man. He can I don't want to say take over games, but he's going to take plays that should not be positive plays and turn them into positive plays, and that's been a huge difference. That is their offense the right offense. now. Their yeah. offense right now is get it to Kamara in space, ideally, and hope that he picks up all the yardage that you didn't pick up in terms of average, in terms of depth of target. Right, third and twelve, we'll give it to Kamara at the one yard line and hope he makes eleven. And most of the time, he is. That's the crazy thing; it's working. Um, the like. The other thing is, like, the Taysom Hill package is – it's just funny. I enjoy it. He had a couple conversions. He had the catch as well, big catch. He did have a big catch over the middle for a touchdown. Um, you know, that, that, I think that's really where, from a Bears perspective, they lost the game from a from – a or, yeah, lost the game. From a Saints perspective, such a huge drive before the end of the half. They're down 10 – and you know you're dinking and dunking down the field which was kind of expected but even from a defensive standpoint even if you're the bears at that point you're like hey don't give up the big play force him to a field goal i still would lean toward make drew throw the ball over the top make Always. him throw over the top of him, right and because because he's going to be also patient enough it's not just patient but i mean he's he's looking for the underneath stuff and that's what got him into field goal range and then you get one little lull in coverage and he gets jared cook i think behind the defense for the touchdown that was a bad drive for the Bears. A nice drive by the Saints, but it just felt like worse defense by the Bears allowing that to happen at the end of the half, get the Saints back in it. What the hell got into Javon Wims? Yeah, he kind of came out of nowhere and hits uh, Chauncey Gardner, Johnson. Not just hits. Like, like really <laughs> almost angry. like warned him that he was hitting him with a little slap and then just went like went swinging nuts. crazy. Um, it's one of the most ridiculous things I've seen on a football field. Also, as if the... Like, as if either Trubisky or Foles wasn't depressing enough. At one point, the Bears broke out both of them. They did. I mean, here's a question. Would you rather have both Nick Foles and Mitchell Trubisky on the field at the same time or neither of them? I mean, if it's neither of them, who's next? Line up Cordero <laughs> Patterson as a Wildcat quarterback and have neither of those quarterbacks on the field. Ugh, give me Foles and Trubisky. Madness. Give me Foles and Trubisky. That's so, how depressing that offense has gotten, though. Like, it's like, well, one of the, <laughs> either or didn't make any difference. Like, late in the game, Tri Fol or, yeah, Foles gets out into the left field, is getting chased down by Trey Hendrickson, just sort of ties himself in a knot and falls over. And uh, Troy is like, that's where you miss Mitchell Trubisky, you know? If you're ever pining for what Mitchell Trubisky once brought to you, things have gone in a bad direction. That's what I'm saying about Foles, though. Too many plays where he just – the internal clock turned into an hourglass. I mean, I think ultimately the Bears are regressing back into what they are. 
and the Saints, I think the bottom line is what, what you said, right? Good teams, find ways to win. It's the same thing we're saying about the Steelers. Is this going to be enough against the Chiefs of the world, against the Bucks, against the Seahawks? I don't know, but the Saints have to do whatever they can to at least stay alive. Yeah. For the division so, win to for the division lead in the South, and they are the critical thing for them is does this offense still look the same when they have Emmanuel Sanders and when they have Michael Thomas when the rest of their offensive weapons are back in situ? Do they still basically just dump it? Like, is it still three yards averaged at the target and hope Kamara and Thomas and Sanders make some plays, or is there more there that they just don't put out yet because they haven't got the players right? Because I don't think this current offense, <clears throat> even with the additions of Sanders and Thomas, can beat the Bucks or the Chiefs or you know whatever. But if they have more in the tank and they just can't show it yet, because instead of Michael Thomas, it's Traquan Smith or whatever. Like if there's more there, then you're in business because they are winning games. They're still in a good position. Like they are getting through this horrible spot of not having weapons and still winning. They are. And even if Drew Brees like isn't looking good while it's happening. Although this game didn't look good before this game had been like the number one graded quarterback for the last few weeks. Um, but that, you know, you know, so it's, it's potentially a good thing that they're managing to, to muddle through this without their offensive playmakers. But it's only a good thing if there's more there when they return. All right, let's go to the Los Angeles Rams at the Miami Dolphins. We spent our entire preview talking about Tua. Yeah. This game had nothing to do with Tua. This was all about Jared Goff against this Miami Dolphins defense. The defense was outstanding. Goff was horrible. And, man, what a performance by the Dolphins D as far as forcing turnovers and, and really winning this game. Yeah. So my prediction going into this game was that we would come out and the narrative would be the Dolphins made the wrong decision with Tua because, and you know Herbert should have been the guy. And it wasn't because of anything we were going to see from Tua, but because the situation they were putting him in was going to be bad and it, they would lose the game, it would look ugly, and that would just be the inevitable resulting narrative. If anything, the narrative is almost the complete opposite and for no good reason, like for nothing to do with him again. Like <laughs> first play of the game, like he gets sacked by Aaron Donald, essentially first drop back. But then from that point on, like Miami just had everything go their way and Tua, as you say, didn't really have to do anything and they still stomped them. Like, what's really terrifying from a Rams point of view, who, by the way, are now basically good against the NFC East and bad against everybody else. Um, what's terrifying from their point of view is that Flores essentially just went into the, the bookshelf, dusted off the Super Bowl game plan, and used it again. And it had exactly the same effect. The Rams seemingly were confused and shocked and had no earthly idea what to do with this, despite having been beaten with it on the single biggest stage they've ever gotten to. That seems like a problem. Yeah, man, it was ugly. Man. It, there was five turnover-worthy plays for Goff. What do we have, two actual interceptions? Yeah. A few fumbles. The worst throw he had was that the you talked about the dusted-off game plan, zero blitz, mm -hmm. and Goff throws what should have been a pick six dropped by Eric Rowe. What's wrong? I have no cough, but oh, me neither. I had to cough too. Hmm. Can we get some cough buttons? And oh, I'm just kidding. It's too late. We've got the cough buttons. I mean, so here's what the Rams' offense was earlier in the year. Jared Goff was one of the highest-rated quarterbacks in the NFL. And again, our grade construction is important. Are you getting a ton of positives? 
Are you getting just no negatives? For Goff, it was almost no negative throws through four weeks. And it was just well protected. It was rollouts and screens, and it was just the safest stuff. Now, they have not been able to protect him, game flow-wise or whatever it is. And it's ugly, man. Once they Once they were unable to protect him from a game plan standpoint and not play the NFC East every week, it has been ugly. This is a concern for the Rams. Their defense is still playing really well, by the way. And our guy Seth Galina did a nice job breaking down their defense on the website on uh, pff.com last week about some of the unique ways that they're playing on early downs and playing the run with two high safeties, all these different things that they're doing defensively. But if the offense plays like this, it doesn't matter. Yeah, this is, I mean, it was bad generally, but the idea that they used a game plan is a couple of years old at this point, and you should have at least figured out an answer to, and you were equally as bamboozled as the first time. Massively concerning. I know you need a certain type of personnel to do this, but like that is, we talk all the time about, is that a blueprint to beat Team X? And most of the time the answer is no. This actually is a blueprint to stop the Rams, and it's now on tape multiple times in doing so. And not every team can run it. Like, you do need the personnel. But if you have personnel that you think can adapt to this game plan, you can now beat the Rams. Um, a couple of comedy stats, though. Tua had an average depth of target of 5.1, which was the same as Drew Brees in terms of, like, miserably short. Um, had the, had a, uh, an average yards per attempt of 4.2, which is less than Ben DiNucci. Um, but... So those are both extremely low. Again, just backing up the idea that Tua didn't really do anything in this game. Yeah. Here's a hilarious stat. Kirk Cousins, average at the target. You know where, where that is? It was like one or something. 1.6, average yards per attempt. Over 11. 11.4. That's insane. <laughs> That's ridiculous. That's the Dalvin Cook, you know, screen pass for a touchdown that'll uh, inflate that just a little bit. And Cousins have been throwing the ball down the field a ton this year coming into the game. Short of the sticks, 93% of his pass attempts, uh, and yet made 11.4 yards per attempt. So really quick, Brian Flores, head coach for the Miami Dolphins, coming out of New England, he had, you know, he had been the defensive coordinator for, for some really good defenses. The, previously, in 2017, the Patriots did not have a good defense. Matt Patricia turned that into his job with the Detroit Lions. Now, it seems that Patricia is still trying to find his way with his defense in Detroit. As mm -hmm. much as I had been touting them in recent weeks, they made me look bad. Mm. Flores, coming out of New England, looked like, man, he's the guy. Like He knows what he's doing. He did a really nice job with the Patriots, and he's doing it again with the Dolphins. Have we officially seen the Dolphins jump up to the number two team in the AFC East, the top competition for the Buffalo Bills, in this defense of not many big names here. I mean, they did a nice job in the secondary, but they've been banged up as far as building the secondary, but they've been banged up. But this is getting the most out of a, just an okay on-paper defense right now for Miami. Yes. Um, I think they probably are the biggest threat to Buffalo in the division, if just because they're the closest in terms of games at this point. It would be hard for anything else to happen. I think it's... They did a really good job. This is... You can only beat what's in front of you. You can only win game plan to game plan. This was as conclusive and as good a job as you're going to see. This was the Super Bowl performance again, right? They came in, had the perfect game plan to stop the Rams, throttle them, 
got uh, touchdowns from weird areas, special teams, all those kinds of things, and won. Perfect. Ideal game to get out of there and protect your young quarterback and not ask him to do too much. So absolutely perfect. When the narrative heading into this game was this is a bad situation to be dropping Tua into and could go south in a hurry, they were able to reverse that completely and it wasn't a factor. So great. In terms of projecting what it means going forward, I would be a little more cautious in because so their next game coming up is against the Cardinals, right? The Cardinals present a completely different challenge and it's not going to go the same way, right? You're not going to have a game flow where you're suddenly way in the lead and you don't need to to do anything. You know what I mean? You're not going to get the score on uh, special teams, the punt return touchdown. You're not going to have this huge lead and you're actually going to need your quarterback to do things. So I think in terms of what it means going forward, we need to be a little bit more careful and say that that's an open question. But it was a great win, and it puts him in a great situation. I will say <clears throat> with Tua, and you know the limited sample size, he did look a little rushed. It was his first time back, injured last year, whatever. I don't want to look too much into it. He did look like a rookie. He looked over, you know, a little. I mean, he's not going to have a good grade. No, he just he looked rushed. He looked like a rookie where the game was moving really fast for him. So it's not so much that he can't do it. It's when does that when does the game slow down for right. him? That sounds generic, but again, like with Justin Herbert, the game didn't look fast for him ever when he got on the field this year. Same thing with Burrow. It didn't look fast for him ever. Tua looks like it might take him a little bit longer. Through one game against a good Rams defense, sure. that's what I saw. I think everything we said heading into this game is still a concern, right? This idea of this is not a good offensive line he's inevitably going to take a little bit longer than Ryan Fitzpatrick to work through everything and to get the ball out of his hands, and that's probably going to cause him some trouble. That, that, all those things remain true going forward. There's still going to be issues. But for one game, they at least ensured that none of it mattered and that it wasn't a big uh, factor in the game. Um, what was I going to say? Uh, I don't know. I lost my train of thought. Never mind. Hey guys, life is full of questions. Like what would happen to my family if something happened to me? Am I saving enough for retirement? And is now the right time to start thinking about life insurance, just to name a few. No one should have to settle for answers to these life altering questions that involve gray areas or leaving things to chance. And with Western and Southern, you won't have to. Backed by over 130 years of experience gathering insights, building strategies and helping customers choose the right solutions, Together, we can look ahead to leave the unknown behind. Western and Southern Financial Group, life insurance, retirement, and investments. Compensated endorser products issued by member companies of Western and Southern Financial Group, Cincinnati, Ohio. Well, good. Let's move on. Cool. Colts and Lions. Man, Colts with a statement game, Sam. A statement game. I thought the, Ly I thought the Lions had turned a corner. I think you convinced me. You talked me into me? it. Yeah, I just said their schedule was looking nice, and they would be in a good position a few weeks' time. You know, I got fooled by one week of a you know high-end Matthew Stafford. Got fooled again, seven straight years. Steve fooled. Not just you, everybody. I mean, Stafford is the new Jay Cutler. This next year is the year. Oh man, there were points in his career where he was very Jay Cutlerish, and it seemed like he had gotten away from that. But yeah, this was a Jay Cutler regression. Uh, Colts death by a thousand crossing routes as i said they that's, that's rivers that is yeah the colts. it is it's rivers river death by a thousand crossing routes and then and then he just drops a dime to jordan wilkins for a touchdown i mean that was the colts offense in this one you know take the underneath stuff underneath stuff and then 
Um, sorry, was it Naheem, Naheem Hines, Hines, not Wilkins? Um, cre- you know, creating that mismatch with him on the outside with Hines. Man, good job by the Colts and their defense. Played great. Darius Leonard was making plays all yeah. over the field. Colts friend of the show. did really well. Friend- well, he'll be a friend of the show. He'll make the one-on-one if he keeps playing like that. He was awesome. Yeah. Their defensive front generally would look pretty awesome. Um, Grover, I mean, everybody up front, DeForest Parker made plays. Grover Stewart was making plays. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody across the board. And Leonard, you know, pass rush with a, you know, he had a strip sack. He was making plays in the run game and in coverage. Really nice job by the Colts defense. And then Naheem Hines breaking out my new favorite celebration ever. You see that? I did not see the celebration. You didn't see the celebration? No. Okay. So they had this, the first touchdown was incredible because they got it out down the sideline. And then made this like absurd spin back inside and sort of span and then stumbled and reached over the goal line for the touchdown. Then did this like gymnastic celebration where he did like a cartwheel into a backflip with a twist. Hmm. Pretty impressive. And then did it again when he scored that second touchdown, the, the beautifully lofted pass over the top. So that's now my new favorite athletic celebration. None of this like, you know, group bowling ball thing, you know, none of this sort of giant Old. orchestrated thing just one guy doing something absurdly athletic and sticking the landing i um i'm trying to catch up with every game at the same time i don't have time to watch the uh, celebrations usually you gotta, I, you gotta make time for the celebration you know, as soon as the touchdown happens it's like all right <clears throat> on to the next game uh, colts i mean they i, I just I'm, I'm impressed with you know who was making plays from denico autry making you know plays as a pass rusher on the interior, on the edge, he got he, had, he was in on two sacks. Taekwon Lewis had an incredible sack. He had two, but bending the edge on one. It was this was classic Colts, right? You've got a bunch of guys that aren't really stars making plays for them. Uh, plus Leonard, who is a star in the middle of the defense. Uh, Kenny Moore, nothing sums up slot corner in the NFL like what Kenny Moore had to do on back-to-back plays. He makes a great play on a post to T.J. Hawkinson, big, huge tight end. Next play, he's got to cover Danny Amendola in space and whiffs on the tackle. Mm. Playing slot corner is so tough yeah. in the NFL. <laughs> play to play, cover the huge tight end on a post, cover shifty slot receiver underneath. Um, but more also, Matthew Stafford, man, the pick six was horrible. Bad fumble in the pocket. He's still making really nice throws and, and creating chunk plays. But the turnover-worthy plays, that was what... I think did the Lions in completely. Is Matthew Stafford like the definition of a coach killer at quarterback? I haven't heard this term used in a while, but it used to be it used to be pretty common. And again, if Jay Cutler was was the coach killer, you know, I I don't know what I would do. That's what I'm saying. If like, I was, have you reached the point I'm in like, the front office? All I know is that if Matthew Stafford is my quarterback, I would be frustrated as hell. Well, I was thinking about this the other day. I was thinking uh, we're putting our free agent list together in, in the coming weeks of Philip Rivers as a free agent. Mm-hmm. And Rivers played really well in this game. And again, I think Rivers in a controlled environment with the dome stuff, he can make some throws and he's okay, right? If Philip Rivers decides to come back next year, would you want to hitch the wagon to Philip Rivers? Like, would you want to hitch the wagon to Matthew Stafford? Depends now, they're better here. than half the quarterbacks in the NFL still. But at the same time, it's like, man, I need a lot of things to go right for this to, to work out, right? The Colts are the right team for Philip Rivers this year, right? A team that oh, believed... Oh, yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, a team that believed that they were a quarterback away from a genuine run or a shot at a Super Bowl. If you aren't in that position already, like if you haven't somehow found yourself to have a championship-caliber roster but the quarterback situation went to hell, I, your, like your franchise quarterback retired, 
and suddenly you're left with Jacoby Brissett. Like it's a weird, it's a very um, unusual situation for that to happen. So the Colts to Phillip Rivers made a ton of sense. There aren't that many situations where that becomes true. I, it's hard to find a landing spot for those guys for that reason. I'm all good with Rivers this year and that setup and, you know, the indoor environment, all of that stuff, right? But, man, it is – they are in that tough middle ground. I thought I thought Stafford helped convince me last year, though, with at least the aggressive style, even if some of it was tough to maintain. You, the, the point of being aggressive is you don't have to maintain incredible play. The aggressiveness kind of takes care of itself. You create chunk plays that, you know, you don't have to be great on. Your receivers do. So – Man, the Lions disappointed. I thought their defense had turned a corner last week. I thought that the offense had turned a corner, and they got smoked nope. 41-21 mm-hmm. by the Colts. How hard could it be, AFC South? The Colts are back in it now. Tennessee's losing twice. Let's go right to the Tennessee yeah. game. Good segue. Well done. Tennessee loses to the unblowoutable Cincinnati Bengals. It's very hard to get blown out when you win. I'm saying. You can't get blown out by the Titans, who are better than you. We thought that the Bengals were trotting out the worst offensive line in history. They still weren't great, but it didn't matter, man. Burrow played pretty well, and Tannehill's, I think his regression has started, man. (laughs) The interesting thing about the offensive line, so on paper, heading into that game, that might be the worst offensive line I have ever seen set foot on an NFL field. On the other hand, because you're now that deep into the depth chart, and you're picking up guys in trades, you're picking up guys just cut off the street, whatever, You've reached the point now where if you get a guy get injured from that lineup, there's like a reasonable shot that you upgrade by the guy coming in. Like Quentin Spain came into this game because of an injury. Quentin Spain is probably one of their better offensive linemen now. Yeah. Um, albeit a guy who's you know come back from some injuries and hasn't been playing his best stuff for a while, it's still better than a lot of what you're doing. The other thing that I found fascinating in this game, and I hadn't really thought about this before, but on paper – Jeffrey Simmons versus the interior of this offensive line. Massive mismatch and a potential major problem, right? Alex Redmond at right guard is probably the best player left on this offensive line. So against certain teams, and it won't work against everybody, and it certainly won't work against a coordinator that understands what you're doing and will therefore adjust. Um, If you are a defense that plays strong side and weak side inside in terms of your defensive tackle aligns to the strong or the weak side of the formation, you can therefore dictate the matchup on offense. Like you can say, all right, he's going to go up against Alex Redmond every play, not the left side, simply by the formation you pull out there. So if you're that concerned, and they were definitely doing this to Tennessee early, they were keeping Jeffrey Simmons on Alex Redmond by formation, which I thought was actually a really clever thing to be doing. Yeah, I mean, it, it, survival, man. <laughs> They're trying to survive as much as possible. They're trying to let Joe Burrow survive. And even in this game where the Bengals were leading for the majority of the time, Burrow still drops back 42 times. I mean, he is dropping back to pass a ton. And, you know, we talked last week about him and Justin Herbert and, you know, what's sustainable and what's not. We'll get to Herbert in a minute, but Burrow did a really nice job distributing the ball again and getting the ball at the intermediate level. Tyler Boyd making some key plays over the middle. T. Higgins becoming a playmaker. Man, I like it, man. I like the way the Bengals are are moving right here. Impressive win for the Bengals with Burrow and their playmakers. I think that is where my prediction before the season was that second half of the season, they're going to be a tough team to play because of those reasons. Burrow, you know, getting used to the NFL. And having dudes to throw to. 
and if they can at least keep them upright somewhat, as tough as it is, they're going to be a tough team. I think that's what we're going to see more from the Bengals here in the second half of the year. This was really impressive from Burrow. Um, didn't have any sort of big major mistakes. Had a couple of big plays or big uh, impressive throws in there and just generally was efficient, right? Put the ball yep. where it needed to go. And I, we said before we came on air, they just have this group of like contested catch guys, right? Auden Tate, uh, T. Higgins, A.J. Green now. There are all these guys that Burrow has to put the ball like perfectly right on their frame. You know, these back shoulder high and away, only where that guy can get it and not too far because God knows he can't adjust and, you know, make a big athletic play to go do it. Like Burrow is just nailing those and he's doing it with that offensive line that's just not in good shape. Um, yeah, you got to... Bur- the Bengals are in good shape going forward because of Joe Burrow. Now, that doesn't mean everything else around him is going to be fine and things have... You know, everything is right with the world and the entire franchise is heading in the right direction. But, like, the single hardest thing in the NFL to do, get yourself the quarterback, I think they've done. And now they just need to make sure they can build around him. Can't talk about the Titans without talking about Corey Davis, though, Sam. Can't. Eight for 128. Had a touchdown. Seven first downs in this one. Look at Corey. Making himself some money. Free agent Corey Davis. Make him regret not picking up that 50-year option on your way to the hall of fame okay all right that's it yeah uh con- concerns with the titans i mean it, it does it simply come down to i mean Tannehill's gonna end up with a mediocre grade in this one uh, derrick henry got his yards but they scored 20 points i think it it's i did tennessee radio last week and it's like you know what do you think of this team or whenever whenever i did what do you think of this team it comes down to Tannehill. Hmm. if he plays at a similar level as last year they're a contender in the afc if he doesn't if he does regress back closer to Miami, Tannehill, they're not. And he's putting the ball in harm's way a little bit more than he was. Still making some nice throws, but it's not at the, he's played at an elite level last year down the stretch. The concern, they're not getting that right now other not. than two games. And I don't think it's necessarily fair to expect or demand it from him. What's concerning for this team is that their defense I don't think is that good. Um, like, you know, you're going up against, again, the worst offensive line we've seen on paper heading into a game. And what do you come out of it with in terms of defensive performance? 15 total pressures as a team, of which 10 came from two guys. So Harold Landry had six, Jadevian Clowney had four, and those guys combined for 66 pass rushes. So even the, the guys that had 10 pressures, A, they were all hurries, so there wasn't a hit or a sack amongst those 10 pressures for Landry and Clowney and B they had 66 attempts to do it like where is this should have been a game where if you have an even marginally elite pass rusher that guy was going to go off and they couldn't like this game's up on premium now their defense didn't show up in a way you needed to no I agree against a team like the Bengals where's their pass rush rank now they are they, they moved up a little bit but they're still bottom 10 in the league as far as pass rushing goes. And that has been a bit of a concern for the Titans over the last couple of years. And mm-hmm. It still is. So good job by the Bengals. Look, I, I'm not, let's not be surprised by Bengals wins moving forward. Okay. I'm just saying. They're going to be – they're a tough out here in the second half of the season. Let's go out west. San Francisco 49ers at the Seattle Seahawks. It, it was a blowout for a little bit, and then, you know, the Niners crept back into it with Nick Mullins. Nick Mullins. Nick Mullins at least made a run there. Russ continues his MVP campaign. Four more touchdowns. 
it was it was impressive from Russ because you know he missed he'd miss a couple throws here and there and then still find a way to bounce back and move the chains and then I, I mentioned this would be more of a DK Metcalf game mm. than a than the previous week where it was a Tyler Lockett game. This was like all around DK showcase game, man. This was like, hey, by the way, he could do everything. Yeah, if you want him to. It was, and I was expecting it to be like a giant mismatch of Metcalf on um, Jason Verrett just because of the size thing. They were actually doing a pretty good job of keeping them away from that. And they right. had him on the other side a lot of the time against uh, Mosley. Um, and it, <laughs> he was just beating him instead. Like it, it didn't make a difference. Either way, DK Metcalf was destroying the 49ers. Uh, my, the fun thing to come out of this game, not if you're a 49ers fan, I guess, but there was a brief moment where there was a quarterback controversy. And it's like, well, can Nick Mullins win this job while Jimmy G is hurt? And Kyle Shanahan was like, hell no. And then that was answered so emphatically by a Nick Mullins game that they had to bench him for C.J. Beathard, rush back Jimmy Garoppolo despite the bum ankle, blah, blah, blah. But then Jimmy G essentially plays himself to the bench. Um, and Nick Mullins comes in and looks back to – Nick Mullins – for most of his time playing for the 49ers has looked good. Had one disastrous game against the Eagles right at the time where people were starting to ask the question about whether he could actually win the starting gig. Is that a valid question at any point? If for no other reason, right? Let me give you the argument. I, I do think that Jimmy Garoppolo is a better quarterback than Nick Mullins. I also think his ceiling is significantly higher. On the other hand, Rembrandt Shanahan has shown that he can build a fairly quarterback-proof offense, and Nick Mullins costs about a million per, millionth of the amount that Jimmy does. Is yeah, the difference I mean, between them... Are we talking about going forward or for this year? Eh, let's start with going, going forward. Going forward, there's, there's no way you're going to trot into 2021 and say, yeah, Nick's our guy. We're going with Nick Mullins. It's not... No, given given the conversations we have here all the time about how much at least mid-level NFL talent there is right now, uh -huh. I can't see it. I mean, I I'm I think it's more likely that Shanahan makes a play for Kirk Cousins. What if he is a mid-level NFL talent? No, I don't I don't know that he is. He's I, yeah, mean, I mean, he's okay. Like Mullins is okay, but how oh, is is he just he's okay in Shanahan's scheme? Yeah. But if, if you can make Nick Mullins okay in Shanahan's scheme, uh -huh. you could do more with someone else. Yeah, but it's going to cost a lot more. What if you yeah, decide that I am capable, my, I, myself as Rembrandt, I am capable of creating this masterpiece whilst only spending $7.82 on quarterback? Dude, even Rembrandt, Rembrandt knew his limitations. <laughs> Rembrandt wouldn't put so much pressure on him. To paint the f perfect picture every single time, but the, right? The, the offset is you get to play, you get the benefit that nobody else gets, where you don't have to pay your quarterback any kind of money, because you know that you can build this. They got to pay him soon if he's got, if you're making him a starter. I, I don't Mullins, see it. No, you don't, because you, you know just, that you are you have a quarterback-proof offense. So you go, all right, Nick Mullins, I'm going to make you a starter in the NFL. You might get paid, but it won't be here, right? The second you want you want to get quarterback money. You're out. I'm going to go to C.J. Beathard. I'm going to go to the next schlep I can grab off the mid-rounds of the draft, and he's going to be the guy starting for $700,000 a season. Like, if you want money, it's not going to happen here. But I might get you in a position to get paid somewhere else. I am going to run this offense paying the quarterback nothing, which gives me 
$25 million that nobody else has to play with, and I'm going to invest that everywhere else in this team. Yeah, I guess maybe. I mean, that, so that would be how you use Shanahan's skill set. Yes. But this is a, that's a John Lynch move saying, look, it's not a Kyle move. It's like, okay, Kyle, I'm taking advantage of your skill set to get the most out of right. Nick Right, but he's got to buy into it. Like, you're not going to do that Yeah, the, the disastrous Mullins game against the Eagles still – Still lives in my brain. Yeah, it was bad. I mean, that's why he was. That's why. That's why he's not starting now. Garoppolo's baseline is is higher. All that stuff. You just you need him to get back on track. You know, just the Niners were hanging in there early. You throw a pick uh, to George Kittle. There's a uh, fumble on a kickoff. I mean, everything was going wrong for the Niners early on. And then it's one when you when you're playing an elite quarterback like Russell Wilson. I used to say that you know, I said this all the time. Brady, Breeze, Rogers, all these guys when they're playing at a high level, like what's the game plan? You know, and when you have, like, they had a few good plays against Russell Wilson, mm-hmm. right? They sacked him once and forced some forced some tough throws. But it's just such a challenge to once he misses a throw on second down, it's like all right, well he's going to make a great play on third down, which he did. It is just so tough to be good down after down and stop uh, a quarterback playing at that level right now. So Wilson and this entire. Seattle passing attack, it's just, you know, too much. Too much for the Niners defense, man. Yeah, Verrett still played well, but they torched Emmanuel Mosley. Yeah. And it was impressive watching DK go for, what did he end up with? 161, eight first downs, and all over the field, right? I mean, it was downfield, it was underneath stuff. Just the fact that they could tap into Tyler Lockett going off one week and Mm -hmm. DK the next week. That is part – Russell Wilson playing at a high level, but that's part of the difference of this Seattle team versus a few years ago. And not just that, but against a team like – Green, uh, compared to the team like Green Bay, right? That's the difference right. that a secondary threat makes, right? This idea of, yeah, every week you know you have to deal with Devontae Adams. But if you go into a game one week with a massive game plan to shut down that guy, somebody else has to benefit. So with Seattle, if you come into a game going, we're taking DK out of this game, right? If you're doing the – Patriots thing of who is their number one threat let's eliminate him from this game make them beat us with somebody else Seattle just go okay fine like this is a Tyler Lockett game now and Tyler Lockett goes off for 200 yards like that is the difference that having a second now it helps when your secondary threat is like a legitimate viable number one in his own right but that is the difference that having a viable secondary threat makes is when you take away number one, the second guy is capable of going off. That's why the Chiefs have those Sammy Watkins games that pop up every now and again. Because when you do eliminate Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey and whoever, suddenly nobody's covering Sammy Watkins. And Sammy Watkins is good enough to take advantage of that, even if he's not good enough to win if everything is played honestly on defense in a, you know, across a – like in a balance across the defense. He's not able to win consistently all the time. But if you swing away from him with everything he is. Extremely notable for the Seahawks defense. Bobby Wagner. He had blitzed 30 times coming into the game. Mm -hmm. 20 pass rushes in this one. A career high for Bobby Wagner. Gets in on seven pressures, including beating multiple blockers for a sack. I mean, he was... Just incredible. Bobby Wagner essentially playing the Jamal Adams role. Yeah. Hey, we can't get after it with our front four. We're going to send somebody from the back seven over and over again. And in this game, it was Bobby Wagner. It has been fun watching the Seattle defense add a few different wrinkles this year. They haven't been great as a, as a defense, but I think they understand their limitations 
and they're trying some stuff in this game. It was Wagner blitzing 20 times. That's insane. He barely blitzes more than two or three times a game usually. At least until Carlos Dunlap gets in and starts playing. Right. Their, their best two pass rushers are genuinely a safety and a linebacker, like an off-the-ball middle linebacker. Yeah, he had a just a Wagner just had a beautiful third down sack. That I mean, they were using him all over the place, man. I mean, I, that was that was impressive. So Seattle continues to roll. They're in control of the NFC right now. Let's go to Cleveland, Las Vegas Raiders. Still, weather game still sounds weird. Yeah, and the Cleveland Browns. It was a weather game, sixteen to six. Yeah, beautiful, old yeah. school. Yeah. This really was a weather game. Like at one point, seemingly every adverse wintry weather precipitation known to man came down at the yeah. same time like it was raining sleeting hailing and snowing all at once um and it just it looked pretty miserable <laughs> brown browns rolled mayfield out of the pocket his first pass it looked like my two-seamer sam oh yeah when he threw it two-seamers that runs up and in on a righty of course yeah it's not good for football it's no. good for baseball get it on their hands break some bats but uh yeah it definitely affected the pass game here uh it felt like you know some of you know, Mayfield's still just trying to zip in tight window throws that are kind of low percentage. And this is what I was trying to say last week. When you throw like a seam route to Jarvis Landry in tight coverage and there's, you know, two guys closing in on him and it kind of it gets to his hands, but it's just this low percentage. Let me just throw the ball as hard as I can up and away from coverage. And last week they were caught and this week they weren't. And yeah. there were plays like that that were kind of the difference for the for the Browns here. It was, yeah. The Because it's a weather game, like – drops and all those kinds of things are going to factor in and baker got screwed by them more than Derek carr did like i think baker's got five drops right five now. five he was 12 for 25 with five drops and a few of them were like big plays like third downs you know vital important plays that needed to be caught and weren't um each guy i think got screwed of a touchdown got robbed of a touchdown um jarvis landry caught a, a nice one that ultimately the replay showed it kind of dropped out of his hands as he hit the ground took that off the board Derek Carr had a nice one to Henry Ruggs in the end zone that looked like he got screwed on replay I, I thought Ruggs got both feet in that was his best throw right yeah back yeah that I was thought, Carr's best throw I that thought Ruggs nice. got both feet in I thought you could see green between his toe and the line they ultimately decided he didn't so that came off the board um and then then it came down to the ground game because crappy conditions right and the Raiders were able to do it better despite yeah. Cleveland having Kareem Hunt. Uh, just to finish up on Carr, um, he is he's probably the guy in the NFL with the biggest discrepancy between PFF grade and just raw stats because he's got some bad fumbles on there that are showing up in his trades, right. not on the stats. Had a fumble yesterday, uh, had a bad dropped interception, um, complete misread. So he's get, he got away with some stuff. But you mentioned the ground game. Josh Jacobs looked a lot more. It was one of those 4.1 yards per carry, but it was three after contact per rush, forced four missed tackles, it grinded out yeah. Raiders rushing attack. And there's if, if the defense is making stops, this is the thing about the run the ball, play defense. If you are shortening the game a touch, a possession or two, and the defense is making stops or the other team's dropping the ball, ultimately it's like, oh, you can win a 16-6 to game and, you know, give Josh Jacobs 31 carries yeah I mean the real difference between the teams was how they went in the red zone the Raiders I think had four trips to the red zone scored all four all four times even if only one of them was a touchdown the Browns I think had three trips but only came away with a field goal like that's that's the difference in a 16-6 game in crappy weather credit to Jonathan Hankins and Cleveland Furl Furl top two run defenders for uh for the Raiders yesterday 
because the grades are up on premium stats 2.0 all a part of pff elite if you guys want all these grades we're talking about get to pff.com grab your pff elite package and it's got to be the elite package guys all the best fantasy stuff the best tools in the world our green line for green line for all the game picks and uh psv2 <laughs> i'm talking the, uh, like i don't know what i'm look at the drop grades for the browns receivers 28.6 for jarvis in the 20 28.8 for njoku 29.9 for kareem hunt 29 27.9 uh, for janovich browns could really use a number one wide receiver like obj yeah or target higgins more because obviously he's that guy <laughs> you gotta target higgins uh man raiders are tough to figure out huh yeah this is also again the the difference of weather versus like they indoors yeah, this is one of those at games. home right like the i said this a couple weeks ago like when do you you don't have too many good defenses that play in a dome Colts are pretty good this year the raiders now that they have this nice indoor environment it's so tough to build a good defense but this there. is the game this is the game that mike renner hates weather for right because you look at a game like this and you can't really take anything meaningful from it because the weather just wrecked it so much right it was a crappy game crappy you weather can. no it's just bad weather good teams good teams throw can it out. win in any way no, you got to throw this out this doesn't mean anything this game is meaningless no. all it means is that the raiders got a nice win on the road in adverse conditions it's oh, not outside it's of not that meaningless. meaningless it is not meaningless meaningless because the best teams still make more plays meaningless meaningless game. i think this one was a weird one because there was a little bit of luck the luck the all the drops were on the the brown side so whether you call yeah, that luck or just the weather brown screw yeah but the raiders didn't drop the ball like that right but that's not because they're inherently better or they have well, they were superior catching skills just because they didn't they were yesterday bad weather throw it out all right another afc west matchup here not matchup but a couple teams this is a mat the last chargers broncos yes i'm losing it hmm. what a game man how did the chargers lose this one i, I just don't know how do they very easily lose 21-point leads like it's nothing? I'm going to steal the stat that was going around, but teams when leading by 17 or more points this season, the Chargers are now 0-3. The rest of the NFL is 52-4. and That's amazing. And, I mean, I was watching this. It's like I, the Denver just wins this game, and like five minutes ago this was a blowout in the other direction. What? What? Yeah, <laughs> it's bad. It's really bad. Uh, Justin Herbert threw a pick early on. Great play by Justin Simmons. And then Herbert continues his really solid play, making making chunk plays, man, <laughs> creating chunk plays. I'm starting to get frustrated by that. Not because, look, I have no ill will towards Justin Herbert. I just, the he is the king of unsustainable stats right now, right? He's like, I haven't checked after yesterday, but he was the number one quarterback in the NFL on third down heading into this weekend. He's top 10 again in under pressure against the blitz on deep passes like everything that's highly volatile he's top 10 in at, in the nfl Trust the despite system. playing behind an offensive line that's terrible and is hurting him and is putting him in a crappy situation right he is dominating in all of the ways that are incredibly hard to sustain long term so inevitably this will come back down to earth but it might not happen this year right you can sustain an insane run of unsustainable play for a season. It's just you're not, it's not going to happen next year, right? Think of the season that we shall not mention because I've used it too many times. Or 2009, Brett Favre, same thing, right? Outlier year, massive departure from anything either side of it. 
inevitably going to come back down to earth the next season. But for 2009, it held the entire way right up until the hideous, you know, Sidney Rice interception in the NFC Championship game. The point is, Justin Herbert is not going to sustain playing at this level, but he might sustain it for the entirety of 2020. Just trust the process, man. What is the process? It'll all revert. No, I mean, I want to give, I want to give, we have to give credit to it. This is the balance of, of football analysis. You give credit for great footballing, right? But you also have to have proper perspective when things that are, again, out of the ordinary right. are probably going to come back down to earth. It's I think a there's very, a balance there with Herbert. It's a very difficult thing to articulate, trying to credit a guy for doing incredibly difficult things, knowing that it's not a, it's not a long-term sustainable thing. But it's, it's almost like what I was saying about Stafford earlier, right? I mean, there's at least enough aggressiveness. If you're, if you're letting him throw the ball down the field like the Chargers have, it might, right now it's working really well. But even if it regresses a little bit, you're still giving your team an opportunity to flip the field, to create big plays, to tap into Mike Williams' contested catch ability, whatever it might be. Who got out-contested catch by a guy who's 5'9", 180. Over time, it, it'll be fine. He, he was three for six in contested catches yesterday, okay? 50%'s not bad. I'm just saying, the aggressiveness, it might you know cause a little bit of regression in you know Herbert's accuracy and this and that, but the, the aggressiveness works over time. So, Herbert's, Herbert's playing well. That's it. I mean, that's the other thing, too. Like, he's a rookie, and you're trying to figure out – I mean, he's – He's look. He's right there with Joe Burrow, like we talked about the other day, just from completely different, yeah. in completely different ways. Chargers fans find that insulting, by the way. He's significantly better than Joe Burrow, obviously. He's not. I did, I'm. I'm. He has I'm not the messenger been. here. I'm just repeating back what I've been harangued with over the last week. The other thing about the other thing that's frustrating about him, though, is for as well as he's playing, because the Chargers keep collapsing in all these games, like he has genuinely thrown the losing the difference between a bunch of these losses, right? He's got a turnover-worthy play that has caused a turnover, which has been the difference between winning and losing at least three games now, Yeah, more. But three, there's three losses that you could say his bad mistake was the difference between... This one, no. I mean, that was, that was early on. It was and they a were pick. Running, I know, but they were running away with it. Sure. I, like, that's what I'm saying, right? Because of somebody else's collapse, you can say if you take away his one error, they win the game. Yeah, this was incredible, man. I mean, the, the Broncos get in it, get back in it with a you know some big runs from Philip Lindsay. I mean, Drew Locke on the other side. It looked like like this should have been the end of people thinking. Okay, this is it for Drew Locke, right? Like he has I mean, not shown anything this year. It's not this is it, but like no, but I mean, I saw people tweeting about it. I remember thinking it man, like they're getting smoked. Like Drew Locks had one good game and it was, you know, a bunch of drops. And like, I don't know. Like, has he shown up? Justin Herbert shown more within a game than Locke shown over the course of his 15 starts or whatever it's been. 10 Except starts. Except the one game where he dropped in all these dimes and nobody caught. Okay. One game from Locke. But I'm saying on a weekly basis, Justin Herbert is far more impressive. Yeah. Than Drew Locke, even in this one, even with think, the comeback here. I think Justin Herbert. And I Herbert, think the Broncos have some concerns building around Locke in the future if that's what they're doing. Justin Herbert has a six big time throw game, right? Am I imagining that? He's got one game that's like right up, I think has six or five, or he's, he's got one monster game in terms Probably of big five. time throws. Yeah, Locke had five with four Outs- turnover worthy plays. That's what I'm saying. In the same so outside of, outside of that five big time throw game, Locke had six big time throws for his career. Yeah. So. 
it, it is genuinely close to saying that Herbert has had games as with as much positivity as anything that Drew Locke has shown in his career outside of that one game. Yeah. So at a macro level, Broncos win, but man, I'm still way more encouraged by what I see from oh, Herbert. Oh, of course. Than like, from I, I, I mean, Drew Locke right now, I, I don't think he's in any danger because what's the alternative, right? Brett Rippon, Jeff Driscoll, like he's going to start the rest of, of the season. But he's running out of time to show that he is the guy there. Now, he might be saved on the basis that the thing from the offseason is probably still true, that I don't know that John Elway has the rope to take another swing at quarterback. I mean, maybe he does. Like, the, guy's, the guy is the franchise, effectively, you know, because of what he did as a player. The guy's God there. So maybe he has an endless amount of, like, chances. But from a normal league-wide perspective, you would not think that that guy, having had so many swings and misses, has another swing at franchise the, quarterback and starting all over again. The thing is, you know me. I say take a lot of swings. And at the time, I, so it was, it was the right move to draft Drew Locke. Yeah. It was their third pick. It was 42 overall. Mm -hmm. They had already gotten Noah Fant, Dalton Reisner, and then you draft Drew Locke, yeah. second-round quarterback, which is where the round he was supposed to be drafted in. And a second-round quarterback, the, the idea is there's a percentage chance that he becomes the guy, but there's a big percentage chance that he's not the guy. And as long as you treat all the decisions after that, you know, with that in mind, then it's okay. Uh, you say the right things. Yeah, Drew Locke's our guy. We're going to move forward. And he's, yeah, he's only 283 or whatever, 300 dropbacks into his career. But at the same time, you have to acknowledge there was a small percentage chance that he was going to be the guy. And we're going to be ready to move forward if possible. And I think they got to be ready to move forward. And it's I, honestly, I don't think this is one of those, like, it's a knock on John Elway. No, it's not. It's just it was that, the right move, but you have to understand it was a low percentage move, and then you have to be ready to grab the next guy right, when but it comes. John Elway's up. job is to find the next franchise quarterback, right? There's only so many times you can fail to do that before inevitably, you, yeah, you're there were, not there was too many failures to do it, right? Before that, and I honestly think, like again, a load of people were really excited by Drew Locke from what they saw from him last season. And my point all the way along was, I think the majority of that excitement was simply he was not Joe Flacco. Right, Joe Flacco was so depressing as a starting quarterback, as was Allen in replacing him, that anything, anything that showed any glimmer of optimism would immediately be latched onto as the hope that you cling to as a fan base that we have finally found something that could be a franchise quarterback. It wasn't a reflection of his overall play, which I don't think was that good. But given the history of quarterbacks before that and Elway's record, I think you kind of had to latch onto that and say, all right, we've seen flashes. Now let's assume he is the quarterback and build around him. That, I think, is a better strategy than saying, we haven't really seen anything. Let's take another swing and have two guys. I'm not saying they should have taken a swing last year. I, so I before think the a, season, I said, yeah, we have Locke and you right. got all the playmakers. Let's see what he is. But it's not like a failure if Drew no, Locke. So fails. I think everything they did surrounding Locke is the right thing to do. It just, right now, I'm not sure it's it's going to work out. And if it doesn't work out, my only point is that I don't know that Elway has another swing at this. The Broncos won. So yeah. let's give them credit for winning an incredible comeback, 21, point, uh, 21 points in the fourth quarter. Why is the Chargers defense collapsing when they, they have one of the most talented groups in the NFL? I don't have a good answer for you, Sam. Oh. I don't know. I was kind of hoping you did. I don't know if it's something to schematically how – it's it's so similar down to down and you just over time teams are finding 
Cover three beaters because they've had a lot of busted coverages. You know that gave up a lot to the Bucks and the Saints. It, they've given up a lot just to busted coverages. It does feel like this defense, uh, from a coaching schematic standpoint, tree is not what it was. And it, it, I did it have a good even, answer, but yeah, it might even be that this scheme was never what it was all cracked up to be, but it was built off the talent level that existed in the Legion of Boom. When you had Richard Sherman and Earl Thomas and um, Cam Chancellor and Brandon Browner and literal prototypes, Bobby Wagner at middle linebacker, like suddenly you can have a relatively vanilla scheme because the guys executing it are so absurdly good. But then when you take the when you take that scheme and you port it to Atlanta or you port it to San Diego and then Los Angeles, it isn't the same because you don't have those guys. Now, the Chargers have some real talent on the back end, but it isn't the Legion of Boom. And even if it was, the league has seen that for the better part of a decade and understands better how to beat it than it did. So even if the Legion of Boom was the Legion of Boom now, it's probably a more difficult job to play at that level. Yeah, so I mean, is the scheme just – has it just reached the end of its lifeline? So much of the scheme was just having the ability – just was the knowledge of how to match up to past concepts. It was also, yeah, physically Sherman's perfect, Earl's perfect, Chancellor's perfect. But it was just like, hey, when they run four verts, you're carrying it, cover it, right? When they run this, cover it. And I think a lot, that's where the Falcons have failed. That's where the Jags failed with the scheme a couple mm -hmm. years ago was simple coverage busts. Because the other team gets to sit – gets to draw up 20 pass plays that are going to break your coverage. Right. And the Legion of Boom took those 20 plays and they matched up with them perfectly and they rarely busted coverages. Now, the other team's got those 20 plays and you bust five of them and those create the big plays and it's 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 as much just knowledge as it is in in reps as it is. But that's why I think physicality. Every defense, every one of these defenses, the the Legion of Boom cover 3, Tampa 2, like all of these systems that don't they run almost the same thing the entire time those things have a shelf life it it's the same with the offensive side of the ball we talk about Sean McVay system and you need 2.0 and 3.0 you need to keep evolving because the league keeps evolving and they it's an arms race you do something schematically they do something to adjust to counter it and then you need to counter the counter and it's a back and forth if you just have a system and it never evolves it never becomes 2.0 3.0 teams figure it out there's a reason Teams still use Tampa 2. The, like, the concept isn't dead. Teams still break it out every now and again, but you can't run it 60 plays in a game because teams understand exactly how to exploit it now. Teams still use cover 3 all the time, but if that's all you're running, like if you're not mixing it up enough, if you're using it as your baseline and you don't have a bunch of creative adjustments to the, to the things that beat that scheme you're going to lose. It's an interesting discussion because on the Chris Collinsworth podcast featuring Richard Sherman, a couple mm -hmm. weeks ago, they debated this. They discussed it. Sherman obviously comes from <laughs> this defense, right? That's what he knows. I and mean, this is, that's what athletes do. Here's what I'm used to. Here's what I, well, here's what I know. Therefore I like it. And that's fine. But his idea when they were talking about the Dallas defense was that it was too complicated, you know, run fewer schemes. So there's a delicate balance, right? There's a balance between running the same thing over and over again, but also overcomplicating things. And, um, yeah, Chargers have some adjustments to make defensively. Two more games to get through. Not get through. I don't want to act like we're getting through them. We are excited for them. Sorry, I take it back. Chiefs-Jets, 
Hmm. And then the best 23 to nine game in history, the uh, Eagles and Cowboys on Sunday night football really quick. The uh, jets, Trevor Lawrence update. <laughs> Didn't play COVID. Thank you, Sam. Got it. College football expert. Sam has nailed it. Also this week against Notre Dame will not be playing COVID due to COVID. Mm -hmm. So you get, Ooh, well, the uh, good news for the jets is got out of the way. Got the COVID immune now. Maybe don't know about that. <laughs> Potentially, immune. My people are telling me there's a lot of Got uh, second of cases coming through here. And now he gets to hit the NFL, having already gone through the COVID. I stuff. mean, it's two weeks that he didn't like, you know, get hurt and also hurt that. his draft status. Can you believe? Well, of course, you can believe the the Chiefs covered <laughs> twenty point spread ish. I'm not surprised. They covered anyway. Didn't matter. Jets hung around for a while. Their biggest mistake was hanging around for the first half. Like really, if they wanted to cover. Which, honestly, let, let's face it, that was the best they were going to hope for in this game. If they wanted to cover, what they needed to do was to get in like a 28-point hole in the first half so that Chad Henney came into the game for like most of the second half and then the Jets could backdoor this thing. But no, if they the hung Jets around. to cover. Right, they hung around for long enough that the Chiefs were like, oh, okay, fine. We'll keep everybody out there. We'll start running fake punts on you. And uh, we'll put up 35. Uh, my only takeaway from this is Patrick Mahomes he played great he's probably you know QB of the week so far 92 grade but some of his touchdown passes are just they're not fair you have a 40 yard tap pass or whatever it was to, to kick things off and he has his second underhand little screen pass for a touchdown this year he's gonna do he's building up to the behind the back trick shot I swear to god it's that play First of all, it was the little shovel. Now it's the underarm. The next one He's is going to be behind the back. Behind it. the back. It's going to be the same play. And get a passing touchdown yes. for it. Behind the back passing touchdown is coming, and it's coming on that play. So Mahomes has. So I'm here Mahomes, for it, by the he's way. Playing well. wasn't obvious. He's playing fine. He's up to our number four graded quarterback right now, 89.1. The grades are up on premium stats. But Mahomes has now his 21 touchdowns and one interception. He's got some of the best interception luck in the NFL good. this year. Plus multiple tap passes and underhand passes for touchdowns. The guy who doesn't need any help from the scheme and from his playmakers is getting it. Mm -hmm. um, so Mahomes will be right back in that MVP conversation because people are going to look at that TD to interception ratio and think, wow, incredible year, 21 to 1. It's not really the reality for Mahomes this year, even though he's still playing really well. Yeah. The, uh, but he took advantage of playing the Jets. The know? Le'Veon Bell revenge game was a non-factor. Didn't like what do you have six carries for five yards or five for six or something? Um, Wasn't a big part of it. All I know is the Chiefs score a ton of points with Le'Veon Bell on the team. Yeah, that's, that's true. That's the analysis still. Um, so there's guess, no other uh, real takeaways here. Guess how many pressures Henry Anderson had? Uh, two. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Henry Anderson is like the most consistent player in the face of the earth. Guy gets two pressures every single week. What does he have so far this year? We got three, one. He's got a couple zeros in there. Damn it. Don't ruin but my previous day. years. Yeah, 18 Henry. and 16 games last year. Nine and eight games this year. Chiefs right, maybe defense. it's more. Maybe it's more like one, but whatever. Chiefs, de Chiefs defense still legit. Certainly against the Jets, who and gave 10 plays. targets to Braxton Berrios. Yeah, they did. Chris Jones had a really nice day rushing the passer. There's your takeaways from the Jets and the Chiefs game. Um, our, um, our ELO rankings, or our, our uh, computer folks here, Sam, have the Chiefs with one of the easier uh, schedules for the rest of the season. So just keep an eye. You know, it's kind of like last year. They kind of trudged through the first half of the season and the second half came together. We might see more of that from the Chiefs, or at least the feeling is going to be a lot stronger about 
the way they look going into the playoffs. I you think, think Quinn and Williams gets moved? No, I don't. He's playing well still. He is. I mentioned the other day. I mean, hand positioning is great. He's blowing people up in the run game and uh, getting after the quarterback at a high level. He is playing well. And I can't see why you would want to move a second-year player um, unless you were getting multiple draft picks. Mm -hmm. At the time when the Jets drafted three overall, I said, look, I love Quinn and Williams, but if you can trade down and get three picks instead of just one, that's how you rebuild. If they can do that, it still applies here. If they can do that for Quinn and great. And as our uh, cap expert Brad Spielberger said too, the Jets have essentially paid the majority of Quinn's money right. to this point. So for another team to get him on a rookie contract would be an absolute steal for the two years plus a first-year option, so a fifth-year option. So there could be some value there. But if you're just getting like a third-round pick for him just to get something, I, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> I don't see that if you're the Jets or Joe Douglas. So I don't see Quinnen getting moved unless some team that has a massive hole at defensive tackle really blows them away with an offer. Mm-hmm. Speaking of holes at defensive tackle, the Dallas Cowboys and the Philadelphia Eagles, it was 23-9. to uh, My description for this game, Sam, mm -hmm. sometimes you become so conditioned to watching NFL quarterbacks, especially good ones. We watch Mahomes, Wilson, Brady, Breeze, Rodgers. You watch all of these quarterbacks. And a lot of games, they just make it look easy to the point where people like us sometimes like, oh, Drew Brees, he had it easy. All he did was dink and dunk and do this thing and – Brady, you know, underneath stuff. It's so easy. Sometimes really good quarterback play looks easy. And then you have a game like this to just bring us back down to earth. And you trot Ben DiNucci out there yeah. and whatever this is of Carson Wentz. And it's like, you know what? Sometimes playing quarterback in the NFL is difficult, as Ben said after the game. Yeah. I mean, I playing quarterback in the NFL is not easy. It's very hard, in fact. Um, on the other hand, it did feel like given the paint-by-numbers game plan that you had for quarterback, if you're Dallas, to get Ben DiNucci viable in this game, I find it hard to believe that former AAF superstar Garrett Gilbert wouldn't have done a better job of executing that offense. Gilbert, like, he's not an NFL starting quarterback, but he's not, like, incapable the way Ben DiNucci was. And, you know, it's not all Ben DiNucci's fault. Like, the offensive line is bad as well, but... They had one of those game plans where it's like, let's pull out every trick in the book so that the quarterback doesn't have to play quarterback. And unlike Kyle Shanahan, who's kind of used to doing that on a game-by-game -game basis, this was like, let's pull out every trick in the book without really a coherent strategy. Let's just like everything that's, everything you've got on page 87 of the playbook that's like, you know, a trick to sprinkle in every now and again, that's just the offense today. And it was miserable to look at. Yeah, it was it was pretty ugly. Danucci's got an all timer for a grade between the sacks, fumbles, turnover worthy plays in general. It was rough. Eagles weren't much better with Wentz. Multiple turnover worthy plays on his end again. It seemed like he had been turning a corner, but you're going up against this Cowboys defense. And again, weather, wind, and Chris made the point like they haven't completed anything beyond twenty yards. It's ugly once you get the ball you know, you you start throwing the ball down there. But it's also part of how you, you also have to know those conditions. <laughs> And you play to them, so it was just ugly. This is one of the worst. Well, that's the thing. Like his average at the target was eleven yards downfield right. in a crazy like weather. What are you doing? Right. So that's part of like we we joke about Drew Brees. All he's doing is throwing the ball underneath. It's like, well, yeah, he's understanding the game conditions 
and playing to it. And the Eagles didn't really do that. And because of it, there was a point that Dallas Cowboys were winning. Deep into the game. Yes. And it just, you know, how it was like, how are the Cowboys winning with this, you know, 2006 Rex Grossman-like performance from DiNucci uh, when what Grossman had, like, zero passer rating in that one game. Um, DiNucci didn't throw a pick, which is just unbelievable because he threw the ball to the Eagles a lot. Yeah, he really did. But uh, but that's that. I mean, the Eagles ultimately took care of business and won twenty three to nine. What are they now? Three, four, and one. Yeah, controlling that division. Oh yeah, commandingly. Still a game back from the Rams. Half a game, I guess. Yeah. Um, I'm a little disappointed. Brandon Graham only finished with one, one sack in that one game. One sack. And I appreciate all you listeners. I appreciate all you guys. But the good news is, halfway through the season, he's got seven. So. Like that's yeah, but like in classic Brandon Gray, like he's he's due for like forty more pressures and two sacks the rest of the year. Yes, I mean he has he now has eight games remaining to get you three sacks. Uh, Mike Garofolo tweeting: It's a very underrated story that Brandon Graham's having a career year here, and he's really not. He's just the sacks are are happening. Yeah, a career year in sacks, which is come on, Garofolo. I'm gonna send you. I'll send you a little note. I'll send you an invite to the link. We are talking about Brandon Graham. In his career year. Because it's relevant for lunch. It's 10 years of regression all happening right now as Brandon Graham creeps toward his 15-sack season and lunch. If he gets to 15, I want dinner. What? I think that's part of the deal. No. Just added it in. Eagles take care of business. They're in first in the NFC East. That's it, man. Monday Night Football is the Bucks and the Giants. We previewed that on our preview episode. Go back and check it out. Should be a good one. Mm, I'm excited maybe. for this. Maybe, maybe not. I think it'll be good. Uh, next week, Bucks and Saints. There will be some some good ones next week. We'll be here on Thursday to preview all of the action. Guest is uh, TBD. I don't know if we'll have a guest. It might just be us. Wow. So just tune in for Steve and Sam. I mean, after all, we're the straw that stirs the drink over here, Sam. The straw the straws, stirs the as drink. Reggie Jackson would say. That's it for us today, guys. Appreciate everybody tuning in. We'll see you guys Thursday. Preview in Week Nine. <laughs>